So this uh, last week, it's hard to believe, it feels like it's been so much longer than uh, last Sunday. Nikki and I had the opportunity to get away, just the two of us, and spend a bit of a, a couple days at a ministry retreat place near Lumsden. That's called the Upper Room. There's a family that's just created this beautiful loft and made it available for pastors overlooking the Deer Valley Golf Course, and, and we were able to to leave the kids with grandma and grandpa and, and just spend a couple nights away, just the two of us. One of my favorite things to do while we were there is we would wake up in the morning, we'd make coffee, well, I would make coffee, Nikki would make some tea, and then we would sit on this deck that looked out over the valley and we would read and we would watch the golfers and the deer and the hawks and the other animals and it was beautiful, and until and we'd sit there until the sun came up so much that it was too hot to sit on the deck, and we had to move inside. It was peaceful and relaxing. The book I read on this deck, in the silence and stillness, was a book called "Burning in My Bones" by um, a man named Wynne Collins. It's, a, it's an autobiography of Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson has long been actually a hero of mine. His writing and life, I hope, is uh, one who shapes me. His approach to pastoral ministry and the church have inspired me. His book, The Contemplative Pastor, uh, his memoir, The Pastor, have shaped my thinking about what is the role of a pastor and what kind of pastor do I want to be and how do I want to do this. His sermons in the book, As the Kingfishers Catch Fire, have been speaking to me in my own devotional life in the last little while. His, His many, many books have have shaped me and, and cha- um, helped me think. And, and obviously, Eugene Peterson is most well-known for his uh, translation of the Bible into common language, um, the message. But A Burning in My Bones is a different kind of book. Uh, it reveals that Eugene Peterson was also a very real person. He had many faults. And with his family's permission, uh, these things were shared. Uh, Eugene Peterson once said, every congregation is a congregation of sinners, and as if that weren't bad enough, they all have sinners for pastors. And we, uh, reading through his autobiography, it becomes clear that this is true. He wrestled with alcoholism most of his life. He nearly had an affair at one point, in a relationship that, that certainly stretched the bounds of what is right. He um, was not always the best of father, especially while his children were young. He was a workaholic. He often talked about the need. He, Eugene Peterson is perhaps best known among pastors as, as being against the competitiveness of church and the, the way churches seek to grow and become mega. But, but Peterson writes against that competitive spirit in the church, not because he wasn't competitive, but because it was one of the idols and things that he constantly was fighting against, that need to achieve and do and be more. He was a real person. But the overarching theme of his biography, the thing that comes out time and time again about his life through his journal entries and through his writing is that he was a man with an insatiable desire to be holy. He was a man who desired to be a saint. It was what he wrote and prayed often, Lord, make me a saint. I want to be holy. He gave his life to walking closely in a relationship with God. And his story just captivated me. I I was completely just 
sucked in by his life and the things that he went through and his, his passion to, to follow Jesus and his, his strong commitment to wake up early every morning and spend time on his knees praying that he would be holy. And so I, I come back to the text that we talked about last week in Matthew 14. And I consider this question about Herod and and what N.T. Wright said about Herod and his lust for women and power and luxury. And then N.T. Wright asked us this question last week from the text. He said, what small weaknesses in our lives are we allowing to grow unchecked that might one day produce real wickedness? What Herod-like characteristics are lurking inside us, waiting for the chance to destroy us. And so then we think about Jesus and and the the transformation that happens inside Jesus before he feeds the 5,000, the way he takes his sorrow and his grief and he turns it into compassion for the crowds so that he can love and serve them. And now in Matthew 15, verse 16, Jesus says, Don't you understand yet? Don't you know that everything that goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? The Greek there is very graphic. But what goes out of the mouth comes from the heart. That's what contaminates a person in God's sight. Out of the heart come evil thoughts false testimonies, and insults. These contaminate a person in God's sight. But eating without washing hands, well, that doesn't contaminate a person. But it's not just evil that comes from the heart. It's also goodness and holiness, saintliness, that comes from our hearts as well. Consider this passage very similar to the one in Matthew, but from Luke 6, verse 43 43 to 45. Jesus says, And a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit, nor does a bad tree produce good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. People don't gather figs from thorny plants, nor do they pick grapes from prickly bushes. This is the part I want us to really hear. A good person produces good from the good treasury of the inner self, while an evil person produces evil from the evil treasury of the inner self. The inner self overflows with words that are spoken. A good person produces good from the good treasury of the inner self. So what kind of treasury do you have? What good are we pulling from the inner self? What are we filling ourselves with? What kind of treasury am I drawing from in this life. We read this morning Matthew 11 from the message, and Jesus offers us a vision for kingdom life, a vision of the kingdom that is not more legalism or more rules or more dry religion. I I love the way Peterson puts it. Are you tired and worn out, burned out on religion? Come away. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the un rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I like how Paul helps us see that this sort of life, he, he says 
in Ephesians, my response is to get down on my knees before the Father, the magnificent Father who parcels out all of heaven and earth. And I ask him to strengthen you by his Spirit. Not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. You see, the vision of the kingdom life, the pathway to being a saint, is not legalism or rule-keeping, but it is the unforced rhythm of grace. It is not brute strength or force of will, but it is simply opening the door and inviting Christ to enter. It is the way that responds to the invitation of Jesus to come and recover your life. Way back in Matthew 4, which we started probably sometime last fall, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began his public ministry by declaring these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here or near. Repent is a word for some of us that has a lot of baggage, and it certainly means different things to different people. I don't know if I've told this story. Um, a number of years ago, I went to a NASCAR race in Detroit with some friends, uh, back when I was a really big NASCAR fan. And, uh, and we, we saw this, we went to a church service in the infield, right? So before the race on Sunday morning, we went and we walked through the infield, and I have never seen more empty beer cans in my life. I'm not exaggerating to say that there were piles about my waist height, kind of like every few, like, trailers, right? It, it, was, it was unreal. And so we went to this church service, and we met the people leading the church service. And they said, oh, yeah, you know, well, what we do is last night with, you know, you have like 100,000 people camping or whatever, and, and, and they get a little drunk, and they get a little rambunctious. And so these, this, this ministry has a contract with NASCAR, or had a contract with NASCAR, to put on a concert on Saturday night. He said, we tried bringing in Christian artists and stuff. It didn't work. So basically, we just play uh, redneck music, and <laughs> you know, we play a lot of Leonard Skinner covers and Zeppelin and, and all the oldies that these guys like, and we just perform, and it keeps people focused and not fighting. And then we have all these people that walk among the crowd and they help drunk people back to their campers who, when they get lost. And they help vulnerable women and, and provide protection for them and help them get somewhere safe when they're drunk. And they break up fights and they work around and they make peace with people. And then they invite them to come to church on Sunday morning. We met a guy. He said, I used to be the biggest partier in this whole infield until these guys came and changed my life. Now I run my camper here <laughs> and tell people about Jesus every year. And so it, it, this beautiful ministry that they were running in the name of Jesus. Then after the last race on Sunday, we're walking out and we, we met some people, uh, a little crowd, maybe more what we think of when we hear people calling for repentance. They had the bullhorn, the sandwich boards, warning of impending hell and judgment for those who do not repent. They did not receive the same sort of favor in the crowd. Sometimes when we call for repentance, it, it brings a lot of things up in us, and we're asking, what is going on? Why Is that what repentance is? Is this what we mean? And sometimes I wonder, when we, we call people to repentance, do, do we know what we mean? And do we know what we're doing? One definition of repentance maybe sums up how you might think of it sometimes. It, it says, a feeling of regret for sins or crimes. Repentance in this case has to do with a feeling of guilt or remorse, of fear. And so you stand with your placard and your bullhorn and you try to make people feel bad for the things that they're doing. 
But that's not a very good definition of the word repent in the Greek. The Greek, the word is metanoia, the one that Jesus uses in Matthew 4. Metanoia. It's a conjunction of two words, meaning to turn, but also to think. To change your thinking would be the most literal definition of the word repentance. Change the way you think. And so Jesus begins his ministry, and he proclaims to everybody who's listening, change the way you think, because the kingdom of heaven is near. Change the way you think, because Jesus is now present. You've been thinking that God was distant, that God's kingdom was far away, but the beginning of Jesus' ministry changes everything. It's going to take a new, radical way of thinking in the world to become a kingdom person. You must change your thinking. The next thing Jesus does is he begins the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount reveals a new way of thinking in light of the revelation that Jesus is here. So I want to start pulling these threads together. I think that for many of us who follow Jesus, we have this sense or desire, this pull towards holiness, towards being a saint. Maybe we don't even know what to do with it or how to get there, but I think that we have all met people who have that saintly characteristic, that saintly quality, and we go, I want to be like that person. I want to be more like that. Uh, there was a man in our church in Watrous, and uh, Ross Schantz was his name. Ross had a massive influence. I didn't know Ross particularly well, but I remember sitting with him in, um, we were doing this personal refocusing thing with our church, and I was sitting with Ross, and Ross was entering into his later, you know, not that late, 70s retirement, and he was sitting there, and he was wrestling with, what does God want me to do next? And I was just so moved by Ross, who was not entering his last section of life, just coasting on what had been. But what was the new thing that God was inviting him to do? I want to be like those people, those saints. Then we have this radical invitation of Jesus, not just to pursue saintliness in a way that is burdensome, that is not religious in the sense that we just become burned out by becoming rule keepers or holiness guardians, but rather we hear the invitation of Jesus to be deeply transformed by the presence and way of Jesus. And finally, there's this idea that repentance is not primarily about hell or some apocalyptic warning for the future. It's not about feeling bad about something you did. Rather, repentance is changing the way you think to realize that Jesus is here. Jesus is here now. So what does that mean? It means that we repent and we think differently about where Jesus is and what Jesus is doing now. In light of the incarnation, the death, the resurrection of Christ, how might our thoughts and our actions be transformed? To live in an awareness that each moment of joy and celebration, think, Jesus is here. In the burdens and suffering of anxiety and depression, think, Jesus is here. When you are being tempted, when you are facing a difficult decision or trial, think, Jesus is here.
is not absent, but the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is present. Change the way you think. So then Dallas Willard used an acronym called VIM as a way of helping us grow deeper in our walk with Christ. I have um, on your papers for you adults, I actually put paper and, and pens for you too this week. Uh, they might be gone. It's okay. Pull out your phone. But Dallas Willard talks about VIM, and he says this is how we can grow deeper in our walk. The first is a vision. You need to have a vision for the kingdom life. A vision is something that has been given to you by God. It is the desire or vision for what life in the kingdom can be like. I love, again, Peterson's paraphrase of Matthew 11. Walk with me and work with me. Walk with me and work with me. What would a kingdom life look like if you were walking and working with Jesus? Perhaps we catch a glimpse of what that vision could be like through the lives of others who are walking and working with Jesus. We say, I want to be like that. I want to be part of that. I was thinking about this. This is within our own lives, but it's also within what kind of world do I want to create and be part of? How am I going to live out this kingdom vision of justice and reconciliation and healing and and transformation? But then the second thing we need then is to make an intention. We need to... uh, This comes after we have caught the kingdom vision by God. We need to decide to become a kingdom person. You have to make that intention. That's where we call people to repent. They catch a vision for what life with Jesus could be like, and then we say, now you need to make that a decision of your own. What is your intention? How are you going to do that? In the case of Peterson, his intention was, I want to be a saint. Okay. I want to be holy. I I want to put my trust and I want to believe and obey in the teaching of Jesus. We begin to put our thinking and thoughts into action. We live out our trust in Jesus with our intention. But here's the thing. Intention only gets you so far. I learned something about myself in the last few weeks. Um, I'm an Enneagram 7, which I knew already, and if you don't know what that is, it doesn't matter. Essentially, it means that my personality is one of those personalities that craves adventure, new, fun. Uh, I did one personality test where they like put you into different types of animals, and I came out as an otter. It's just like, let's be playful and have fun and splash around, and let's not get too serious about things, right? If you know me, that probably makes a lot of sense. Um, The dark side of that personality, though, is that when things are no longer fun, I'm ready to quit. And my, my eject button is really big. And if I'm not healthy, and if I'm not in a good place, as soon as things get hard, bumpy, difficult, I'm done. I'm out. And so I have a hard time pushing things through to completion because everything gets hard eventually. (laughs) When things aren't fun and joyful or life-giving, I have to be aware that my first and natural reaction will be to leave or to quit or to move on to the next thing. So intention can only get us so far. As that old saying goes, good intentions pave the way to hell. So Willard tells us, good job. You have a vision for the kind of kingdom person you want to be or the kind of kingdom world you want to live in. And we've begun to set our intention. We've begun to walk out that transformation, but we still need the means. 
We have, by the means we need to ask, what do I need to do? Where do I need to change my thinking so that I can become this kind of kingdom person? How will I go about changing my inner character to align with Jesus? We must recognize our failings, our thoughts, our feelings, our habits, our social interactions, other ingrained attitudes that prevent us from becoming like Jesus. We just have to decide, how will I repent? How will I change my thinking so that I can become that person that I envision, what I intend to be? So vision, intention, and means are a way of working together with the Spirit of God to bring transformation in our lives. This is the deep transformation. This is the renovation of the inner treasury so that the things that come out of our mouths, so that our actions are done from a place of deep transformation, a place of wholeness. So means are spiritual disciplines, the act of praying, reading your Bible, silence, meditation, joining a church service, finding a mentor, acting justly, changing the way you give, giving money to the church or to other organizations. Now, none of those things change you, but they create space for the Spirit of God to transform you. In the same way that the desire to be a saint or to be holy can change us, but um, there's this delicate dance between learning the unforced rhythms of grace and also accepting the yoke that Jesus puts on us. There's a balance there between this is not more legalism, means are not meant to be a new set of rules you keep, but it is a way of setting some guidance, some structure to your intention and your vision. Scripture is full of the promise that God will work in us, will change us, but it is also full of the calls for us to change the way we think, to put off the old sinful nature and to put on Christ, to put on our new identity. Transformation comes in this dance between God's work and ours. And so I want to give you the last few minutes here as a chance to work through the vim for yourself, to consider what is the kingdom vision Jesus is inviting you to, to consider your intention for the kingdom life and acceptance, and then to ask the Spirit to show you what are the means that you need to do to set in place so that you can fully live this out even when it gets hard. So I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to do that, and then we will celebrate the Lord's table together.